I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apet. And I'm Jill Duggan. And this is Join the Dots. I'm an environmental economist. Sabina is an environmental scientist. Jill is an expert in climate and energy policy. We've spent our careers giving advice about the environment, and we know choices are never straightforward. Here in each show, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet, and our planet. In previous episodes, we talked about the environmental impacts caused by the design, production, use and disposal of products such as air fresheners, cosmetics, toiletries, medicines, washing detergents and hygiene products. We've explored the pathways from the release of harmful substances to air and water through to impact on the natural environment and human health. We've also talked about what we as consumers and citizens can do. In this episode, we want to understand the business side of this equation a little better. The business of business, if you like. What makes companies better at being more sustainable, commercially, but also socially and environmentally? Have companies been changing the way in which they conduct their business to reduce their impacts? If so, how? If not, why not? To talk about this, we have with us Helena Waith, the CEO of A Bird's Eye View a strategic business and marketing consultancy, which she founded after years of working in different strategic and leadership positions across sectors and the world. Welcome, Helena. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Helena, we wanted to invite you to join us for many reasons, one of which is this striking sentence you have on your website, which really chimes with us. Business as usual is unsustainable and a wasted opportunity. Why is that? Absolutely. Well, two things, business as usual, wasted opportunity. Business as usual is no longer possible. There are so many indicators that demonstrate why businesses need to change their business model, change the way they engage and contribute to society, and really look hard at the impact that they have, both positive and negative, as part of how they do business. The other part in terms of wasted opportunity is business needs to change. A lot of businesses tend to use the lens of risk and take a defensive position in terms of the types of change and transformation they need to make. Actually, I think there's a much better opportunity for businesses to take a more proactive lens to how they tackle the transformation that they need to make and really look at the opportunities for their business from a long-term point of view, but also how they can really contribute at a much greater level to society, to the environment um, and to the the customers and stakeholders that they serve and uh, engage with. You say business, but business is an amorphous term. What is business? Is it one thing or how do you define that? Quite often we talk in absolutes around these topics. For example, in the UK, there are 6 million registered businesses. 99% of them are small or medium-sized enterprises. So the large businesses, which often are in the spotlight um, in terms of the FTSE listed or the big multinationals, they're in the spotlight for lots of reasons, particularly because of uh, regulatory requirements and stakeholder requirements. They actually only represent 0.1% of all businesses, and yet they employ almost 40% of the workforce in the UK and they have almost half of the turnover. So 
Obviously, they are very important and play an extremely important role for both the economy and also the impact that they have in the UK and more broadly. But I think it's a great question. We need to look at business, not only sector specific, but also in terms of the size of the organization, the resources and capability they have, and actually the role that they play within the bigger ecosystem, not only as a stakeholder, but as a really valuable supplier quite often for larger businesses sitting within their value chain. So that's another term that as I am a small business owner, but I don't really understand (laughs) business. I understand environmental science. What do you mean when you say value chain? So previously, there used to be more focus on supply chain Mm. and supply chain tended to focus on inputs, what a business did to transform that product or service and outputs. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of value chain, we're looking much more broadly at the full, fuller extent of the supply chain. So whether that be uh, the materials that are uh, sourced that go into a product or service, the production in all aspects, not only manufacturing, but labor, um, the impact um, and resources that, that are required to produce a product or service, how it's consumed, how the product or service is disposed of, if that's the case. So, for example, like a consumer good product. So, in terms of the value chain, we talk about the full range of activities in a company's business model that goes to create the product and service, which creates value for the customers that uh, consume the product or service. Well, one of the things I was kind of interested in that is the influence, although they're just 1% of total number of companies, these because of the value chain, these companies with their resources have enormous influence on their suppliers and on what happens to their goods afterwards. So although they do not represent everything that we're interested in, they are disproportionately important, aren't they? That's right. Actually, I was looking at something from uh, John Lewis. They recently published a statement about their supply chain. Turns out they have suppliers from 64 countries, 700 of their suppliers they've had for over 30 years. So they've had really long-standing relationships. Mm -hmm. I did some research last year with board directors from across the world. The research found that actually board members, executives, management understand that their supply chains are often more complex and more vulnerable than they previously realized and that actually looking at their business model from a value chain point of view and all of the different steps and all of the stakeholders involved is a much more effective way to understand not only the impact of the full value chain, but also the areas where they can intervene to make the most change that can help uh, reduce negative impacts, but also create opportunities for new innovation and new more effective ways at delivering products and services that are more aligned with what we need for today and tomorrow. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I think just to give a little background, I've worked with business groups, I've led business groups in the past. And one of the things that I found, obviously in a new area, such as looking at climate change or environmental impact, is the amount of information that they have is quite limited. They don't always see the connections between what they're doing and what the impact is on the environment. They have government affairs departments, they have research and innovation departments that are focusing on making their product better, but they don't always have 
information about what they should be doing to be good corporate partners in the world with the, and minimize their environmental impact. And an example would be, I can remember going to the United States and sitting around a table with some companies, some of whom said they were already net zero because they offset everything rather than actually reducing their emissions. So I think since then, and that's a, a few years ago, that knowledge has improved, but I still think it's quite tricky and even if you look at policymakers, there's missteps along the way, aren't there? You know, people do things with the best of intentions and then discover that what they were doing was more environmentally damaging than they could possibly have imagined. A lot of organisations and leaders do have the right intentions. However, as you say, perhaps they don't have a more holistic perspective of all of the issues and what different divisions within their organisation are actually doing one of the things that I see at the moment is there's so much. So the increase in regulation disclosure reporting is really is fundamental and it's leading to siloed activity. So different parts of the organization measuring or disclosing or reporting on, on certain key aspects of the organization as they're required to. But no one's actually stepping back and looking and joining the dots mm-hmm. um, in terms of mm-hmm. how this all fits mm-hmm. together. But more importantly, how does it all link into their organization's purpose, into their values, into their strategy and business model in a way that just makes sense? You know, it intuitively makes sense for that brand, that business, the stakeholders that they engage with, the customers that they serve. Quite often, a lot of the elements are there, but they're just not connected up in a way which makes sense. Is it part of the process, do you think, that what I've seen with some businesses and, and probably not enough businesses is they they start off with that compliance attitude and particularly if they have a public profile, it can lead to the acquisition of what has been described as eco-bling, which might be a, a wind turbine or something that demonstrates that they care about the environment. But actually, as they go along that, they realise that what they need to do is take a step back and rethink what it is they're doing and how they do it. And that can quite often completely change Mm. their production, their business model. But it's actually how do you get them to that point where they're taking the step back? That's kind of an interesting challenge, isn't it? Mm. And seeing the opportunities rather than just that sort of risk compliance and presentational approach. Sometimes this is where stakeholder research can be really valuable because in my experience, when we do stakeholder research, an organization may be seen as taking good steps and taking initiatives that are actually seen as worthy and important to do. But actually, when you ask stakeholders, is this where you think that company can make the most impact? They'll say no. (laughs) So that's really, you know, worthy and a good thing for you to do. But actually, as a stakeholder, I associate your brand and your business in this area. And this is actually the area where I really think you should be taking more steps to reduce your negative impact, because that is where you have your biggest impact. But also it's where we all associate you operate um, and the territory that you're in. And so that's where... The offsets are important, but as you said, it it really needs to dial back into the organization and for leaders and teams to be able to look with more scrutiny at their own business model and the impacts that they have. Sometimes they're able to do that internally, and sometimes there's a benefit to having independent external people help bring a a fresh and new lens uh, to that perspective. To what extent is the new framing or thinking also driven 
by the fact that organizations are becoming more aware not only of the impacts they cause, but their dependencies on functioning in healthy ecosystems, and that the way they do business benefits from the sustainable natural capital as well. Is that being embraced more that they understand that it's not just about image, but surviving? Uh, Yes. So a great example is Unilever. So Unilever recognizes just how important water is to many of their products, both the manufacture of their products, but also the consumption of their products. And they recognize that water scarcity is a very real thing. On their website, there's some really interesting information about how they're looking at this and how they're leaning into this. So they recognize that water is absolutely essential and fundamental to the products that they offer. Another example um, is Tesco and food security. So the fact that a large amount of food that's currently consumed in the UK comes from outside of the country and the importance of having a a clearer strategy. And so in terms of the government work that's uh, underway, I believe that Tesco and other key um, supermarkets have been invited to contribute to this because if they can't provide and supply food in an accessible way that's healthy, affordable, etc., that's a real problem. And so some of these um, issues, you see businesses going outside their immediate business because they fundamentally recognize that these aspects, particularly from an environmental and social point of view, have to be addressed not only for the nation or in in some cases from a global point of view, but for the longevity of their business. One of the things when I've worked with business in the past is quite often businesses respond to regulation. So we look at the risk-based and the compliance approach, but they don't understand the big picture behind it. Or if they do in the boardroom, they don't at the middle management implementation level. So they start to do things because they're required to do them. And we can look at the consequences of that, perhaps with, you know, VW and Dieselgate, where there was a regulation, but people weren't thinking about why it was there, which was about cleaner air. They were looking at it as a constraint on the business. Mm. And if you're an engineer in the business, you probably just thought, oh, what's the best way around that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and clearly businesses, you know, they have their government affairs departments and they have their research and innovation. But it is not necessarily their job at the moment to do that, you know, broad environmental impact assessment. And that's probably where the consultants need to actually make sure that as some of that gets understood across the business, not just at the board level, but it needs to follow through so that it the way in which some of these things are implemented Mm. within businesses makes more sense. Well, you say it's not the business's role, but actually I looked at the UK Companies Act and I really must get this in. Section 172 or 172, is that how you read the law? It says duty to promote the success of the company. And to us, the success, you know, don't all businesses just want to make profit and, you know, as quickly and as much as possible. But actually that section 172 does have items on saying the duty to foster the company's business relationships with suppliers, customers and others and the impact of the company's operations on the community and the environment. But it doesn't actually talk about the the dependency point that Sabina made, you know, then maybe this sort of regulating the impact of the business, the impact becomes a risk and a, and a negative thing that you want to minimise and then move on, rather than when you talk about your dependence of your business on nature, you're thinking more strategically. Then comes the sort of Unilever worry about water. 
because water becomes of financial importance, right? And and they are serving the kind of business needs to sustain its profits and then say, well, water becoming a limiting factor. I need to do something about it, which then happens to be also beneficial for the environment. I think that there are two points um, which are really important here that you've hmm. both highlighted. One is the ability to communicate from the top throughout. So, for example, if there's a business that has several thousand employees, but actually 20 to 30,000 suppliers or contractors that are part of their sort of extended workforce that help deliver the products and services, then being able to articulate clearly the purpose of the organization, the priority behind addressing certain uh, material issues, so environmental, social, human why that's relevant for the organization, why it's relevant for the ongoing success of the organization and its ability to perform better and to be able to explain to the different stakeholders, in this case, employees and subcontractors, what their role is in a simple but in a clear way, then people come on board. Absolutely, we can't underestimate how important that communication is. And we have to remember that sometimes perhaps with boards and upper management, it's something that they're very close to and discussing. Um, mm. And so there's assumption that everyone else understands this. But as we've all been saying, there are so many different dynamics going on, both in terms of regulation, in terms of voluntary and involuntary disclosures, um, mm. et cetera, that are happening that are quite technical and in some cases pretty dry. And so what's absolutely essential is being able to translate mm -hmm. that across all of the different stakeholders so everyone mm -hmm. co-owns what it is and why it's being done. Mm -hmm. In terms of Section um, 172, this one's really interesting. So the, the research I did last year, I did a, a survey with the Financial Times um, board director program and we had over 150 uh, members give a quite a detailed perspective and share their insights around this. And one of the questions that was asked was around Section 172 and if they felt that certain factors were more important than other factors. And actually, the overall view was that there's very little difference. They're all important, but it is sector and situation specific. Mm. So certain organizations at the moment might have something where absolutely they need to have a, a much clearer regard for employees because of something that's happening within their organization or has been happening in some other cases, something might happen outside of the organization, which absolutely shifts the attention and required efforts, etc. And one of the things around Section 172 is, first and foremost, boards need to articulate how they're engaging with the different stakeholders and why. But also in terms of these different shifts and changes, that actually this is a dynamic process. The great thing about this being in place is that everyone's really clear that there needs to be better stakeholder regard and that from a board point of view, shareholders are important, but actually the wider uh, set of stakeholders is equally important. And all of that is about their role and their duty in terms of the longevity and, and health of, of the organization that they govern. I wanted to unpack this term stakeholder. When you talk about stakeholder, what is it that it means in your world? So in terms of stakeholder and stakeholder capitalism, if I answer that with a few examples. So recently, the US Business Roundtable, over 180 CEOs basically committed to take a more stakeholder capitalism approach. The stakeholders they described were customers, employees, suppliers, communities and shareholders. 
It really does vary by organization and by sector. There needs to be a regard for everyone that can be or is affected by the impact of an organization and can contribute their voice to help influence decision making. Obviously, it's a challenge because all of the stakeholders may not be aligned in their views. In fact, they're not, which is why it makes it richer and more valuable to understand all of those voices and to understand the weight of importance of those voices. Certain stakeholders um, and their views and their needs may require immediate attention and action. Others may um, have a more medium to longer term perspective. But understanding those different views, um, their weight and their relevance for an organization is is really fundamental. So in terms of the US Business Roundtable, in terms of the World Economic Forum Davos Manifesto, the whole discussion around stakeholder capitalism last year in particular, at the start of the year, I found fascinating because there was a real momentum behind this. And there was a lot of discussion sort of in, in absolutes, if you like. So COVID will accelerate the shift to stakeholder capitalism or a more inclusive economic model. And so actually, this is one of the reasons why I did the research that I did um, in partnership with the Financial Times Board Director Program, because I, firstly, I wanted to understand whether that was true. Did this reflect mm. the views of board members? And uh, actually, what I found was really interesting and comes back to some of the themes that we're talking about, that we really need to understand the different attitudes and behavior, whether it be board members, whether it be business leaders, whether it be consumers and stakeholders, it's not useful to group them all into one bunch. So for example, approximately 50% of the board members believe there will be an accelerated shift to stakeholder capitalism. 30% are undecided and 20% don't. They don't believe, they don't buy into the whole idea of stakeholder capitalism and a more inclusive economy which looks at environmental, social, and human factors. At the same time, two-thirds of the board members surveyed um, felt that business has a growing responsibility to increase the wealth of society and not just shareholders. So there are a number of dynamics going around that really need to, to be unpacked. I've recently heard similar research, again, reinforcing that sort of 50, 30, 20 type of segment split that I found through my research. And it's important for us to understand the differences. Boards need to have independent and diverse views, and they also need to have the right composition of people mm -hmm. that really uh, have a strong view on this and have the, the knowledge and expertise mm -hmm. to be able to contribute to strategic discussions and mm -hmm. also ask the right questions that really need to be asked so that we do have a look closer at the interdependencies and, and some of those material issues, Sabine, that you were mentioning. The right questions is an interesting point, actually, because sometimes you don't have to have lots of evidence to convince people to change the way that they do business. Sometimes you have to ask them the right question. And if I can give an example, so I work a lot on trying to unpack the dependencies of business on nature. Um, so I say to, say, chief finance officers or accountants for business, you know, exactly what manufactured capital you have, you know, what's your infrastructure, how many machinery you have in your business, how many desks do you have in your office, and you keep registry of this, you follow its depreciation, because you know, you need to put money aside to make sure that you maintain those capital assets to be able to continue your business. You also depend on nature. But you have no idea what assets you depend on, and how it's depreciating and what it means for your business. Why is that? 
And you almost don't need to prove how dependent they are because you just pointed out a gap in their knowledge. So whether they motivated by risk or motivated by opportunity to answer that question, they have to answer that question. And we had some work with an agriculture-based food production company, which I won't name for now. And at the end of the work, their CFO said, I now realize soil is a financial asset. Now that's a major achievement. Uh, Yes, I know one of my colleagues said this is the pinnacle of his career. He might as well (laughs) retire now. Uh, And I still get slight goosebumps when I recount this story. And this is a business renowned for its sustainability. So sometimes the answer is just there staring at us in the face, but we haven't asked the right question. And we don't have to go and do loads of new research. This makes me think of the framing you first talked about, which is value chain, which is really global, because often we're more concerned with controlling the impacts within our own country. But there are impacts globally, are there not? Absolutely, there are impacts globally. And that relates to the company's value chain, as you say, and where they source their materials or the components from, where the value adding, if you like, takes place in terms of manufacturing or assembly, but also where they're consumed and then how they're disposed of. And so we're taking a wider perspective. We're also looking at the company's responsibility that it no longer stops at the point of purchase, that it actually goes beyond that. And what's interesting is that some companies are now looking at this more carefully and realizing um, in some cases the majority of their impact may be the materials and components that they source that make up their products and services, Others, like consumer goods companies, actually recognize that the majority of their impact is at the point of consumption or post-consumption when it requires uh, the disposal of, of packaging, for example. And so I think the questions that are being asked and also the visibility that is now becoming much clearer to both business leaders, to government and policy, but also to consumers, so that consumers can ask these questions and make a decision on whether they feel comfortable and satisfied that a company treating their workforce in the right way, that they're thinking about the packaging that they dispose of and whether that's ending up in the ocean or in landfill, etc. So, The increase in visibility is really important for people to make more informed decisions. And there are some critics which say some of this is greenwashing and then there's not enough visibility. And so really there's an opportunity for people to to sort of go that step further. So a company may um, have statements about their position and policies on modern slavery, on sustainability, etc., but there are also other sources from independent organizations which may take a, you know, an objective look at what an organization's doing and you know, whether they're good enough. I think in terms of consumers, more and more now are asking and expecting more of companies. Mm. So in my marketing business experience, it's been really interesting to see the evolution of that dynamic and that sort of push-pull tension between business and customers because it used to sort of be customer need and expectation and demands has always been central to what business look at and and how they try and deliver their products and services. But now actually there's an increased level of expectation by customers and and consumers in terms of what products and services are being um, offered and how and what impact they have. But also this idea of permission that actually there's 
not only an expectation, but a permission for brands and businesses to change what they do and how they do things. Mm. And so this tension between the sort of push-pull in terms of initially thinking that it's basically it's a company's responsibility to make a product or service available, and then it's up to the customer and whether they buy it and consume it or not. That's moved on a long, long way. And so there's so much more scrutiny now and expectation. So a company might sell an organic product or a, a product that uses a lot less um, ingredients or water in its manufacturer. But actually, there are other parts of their business model that aren't satisfactory, that don't demonstrate their ethics and values. And and so this is something that customers might say, well, look, it's great that you're now offering these more sustainable, responsible products. But actually, I want to understand a lot more about you as your organization and what your impact is doing and how you're tackling all of these issues. Helena, it's really interesting. My kind of instinctive observation is that companies are beginning, they're not there yet, but beginning to recognize that they need to provide greater transparency. I mean, I certainly remember that when I used to work in government sort of 15 years ago, that there was huge reluctance and talk about commercial sensitivity all the time about absolutely anything. Whereas now, in order to operate, they have got to increasingly be prepared to share information on what they're doing. And if they don't, they're going to find themselves in a Channel 4 documentary or, or something on the front page of a newspaper. Mm. Is that just my perception or do you think that's a genuine shift that we've seen over the last 10 years? I think it's very much a genuine shift that there really is a requirement for a lot more transparency, particularly for customers and consumers, but also when it's done well, the disclosure and transparency should be central to decision-making. And this goes back to what we were talking about at the start of the conversation is if the lens is sort of defensive and risk and compliance, then there's a missed opportunity because this whole process should help and continue to evolve decision-making and changes to strategy and business model as part of the process for transparency. I almost want to say to colleagues who do economic appraisals for government to catch up with the times because they are always assume we must we must minimize the cost to business at all costs almost. But I'm hearing different and more encouraging things from this discussion that financial cost is not the only thing we want to minimize anymore. So let's loop back a little to my or my friend's position as consumers. Almost every commercial we see now, it's it's butterflies and teddy bears and every company is sustainable and wonderful. But how do we really make better choices without doing a research project on every product? Who's minding the sustainability claims? Who's certifying? And how can we be responsible consumers without being completely exhausted? Mm-hmm. That's a great question about being overwhelmed and exhausted. And I've seen this in research, uh, consumer research that I've conducted uh, with different clients is that there is a lot of noise and it sometimes can be very hard to navigate. Sometimes there may not be enough information. In other cases, there might be too much information. And people are trying to understand uh, to the best of their ability, how do they make changes in the way they live their life, you know, day to day and also perhaps longer term decisions. And so it's the way information is communicated, the tone that's used is really important. And it will vary obviously by organization and also by the different consumer segments. 
So some of the research that we've done also around consumer attitudes and behavior shows different levels of awareness and agency um, in terms of making change. And so the idea that you have a one sort of stock message, clearly it's not going to appeal and resonate to everyone. So does part of it goes back to those questions, you know, asking the right questions, taking the time, maybe in some cases going a little bit wide and not just sort of asking the direct questions of how much more will you pay, et cetera, but really getting into what the motivations are for people to change their behavior because they vary and that's normal. And sometimes there are assumptions. I think we're held back. So certainly in terms of business, there are certain assumptions about what people prioritize or don't prioritize. That's not always the case. And so you're right, it doesn't require lots of over-engineered research, et cetera, but certainly it is really valuable to get a better sense for mm. what these different priorities and motivations are so you can more effectively tap into them. And that's an evolving process. And so how businesses do that in an agile way that's not restrictive, but also um, not cost prohibitive, but at the same time really helps continue to give that constant feedback so that they can continue um, to adapt and engage, engage on the issues with customers and, and understand their expectations. Can I just say, it's also a little bit generational. I mean, I've heard in the finance world that they are driven by satisfying the demands from millennials yeah. for where their pensions are invested. Now, I'm not a millennial and I was rather old when I set up a pension. And only um, three years ago, I decided to change to an ethical one. And it was quite hard to find one that was very good. And at the end, actually, the ethical pension I found performs better than the mainstream one that I was in. This is going to be the topic of another episode before too long. But the reason I raised it is that just as business is not a uniform blob, neither are consumers. And I think it gives me hope that the younger consumers are a bit more discerning. Discerning, yes. Discerning and, and a bit more confident about their power, you know. One of the, the drivers that I came across when I was working with business groups for them to do the right thing was that they were very, very aware that as they recruited, particularly, you know, young people straight from university or school, that they were far more concerned about working for a company that they felt proud of yeah. and that they felt was doing the right thing in a variety of ways, societally, mm. environmentally. So for them, that was quite a strong driver as well. Maybe this is about just making sure that we're all asking questions all the time. Yeah, I think, Ed J., you have a good point. Information is power. You may have different priorities, but you need information to balance those yeah. to make the choice that's right for you. Mm, yeah. The thing I find really exciting is that so many stakeholders now have a voice in a position. And so it's not just consumers, it's investors it's government, it's NGOs. NGOs have always played a really important role, but there are suppliers, there are so many different stakeholders now having a voice mm -hmm. that it can't, for sure, it cannot be ignored. As we talked about earlier, sometimes the views and voices are different, but ultimately there's more scrutiny, more pressure and expectation, but excitingly there's more alignment mm -hmm. around some fundamental issues which just requires a shift. So the question isn't will or won't you shift, it's how you shift, how quickly you shift, and how effectively that's going to start addressing some of the issues and, and risks that we um, talked about, but also fundamentally tap in and create new opportunities. The other thing um, I wanted to circle back on 
AJ, you talked about performance. This is also really important in terms of communication and links into greenwashing is that products and services still need to perform. Quite often, the primary reason someone buys a product or service is not because of its uh, sustainability rating or credentials. They buy it for a particular reason to meet a particular need, and it needs to have these other aspects that satisfy them in terms of the impact or ethics, etc., of a product or service. And sometimes I think that gets missed. And this is where, again, the real innovation can come from when you understand what the motivations are and the needs of customers and how to intuitively and seamlessly build in these other aspects in terms of social, ethical, environmental um, responsibility then it becomes a really, you know, powerful um, and exciting offer. And that's that's the thing that I'm I'm really interested in in terms of looking at how businesses and brands are doing this. Well, that's been a really interesting conversation that I think will actually generate a few more episodes looking at the variety of different businesses that there are when we talk about businesses and how we talk increasingly about the value chain, which includes the whole life cycle of products from the suppliers to to companies, the consumers, the packaging, everything around the products that we use and stakeholders who are not just shareholders, not just consumers, but anybody who is impacted by any parts of the process. We've also touched on how some practices have got better. So over the last 15, 20 years, Some companies seem to recognize that transparency is a part of the license to operate. They have to give more information about what they're doing. That doesn't include everybody by any means, but it's certainly moving in the right direction. There are a couple of standout moments for me. Business as usual is a wasted opportunity. And when companies focus on risk, they miss opportunities. And I think also the recognition from a company that soil is a financial asset that actually, if we ask the right questions, we can get businesses to think about things in a different way. So there's a lot of good progress, but we also recognize that quite often what board members understand doesn't necessarily follow throughout the business, that there is greenwash, that we need to continue to ask questions, we need to think about our own priorities, and we need to hold companies for account to what they're doing for their employees, for their consumers, for their supply chain, and for the environment. And I think one last point is that there is an assumption, we think, when government policymakers are looking at this, that the costs to business are paramount. But we think that that balance is shifting and that increasingly citizens, stakeholders, require that the cost to the environment are taken into account. I think there's a lot more to come from the conversations we've been having in this episode. So stay with us and look out for the next one. Thanks for listening. And thanks to the rest of the team, Neil McEwen on sound and music. If you enjoyed this, look out for our upcoming episodes and all other info on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com.